So last week we had a guest that many of you uh, were very angry about, but we're not going to have that problem today because we have Sorab Amari, who is not only a great guy, he is a fascinating thinker. He has a terrific book out, a really interesting book called The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. And he is, of course, the op-ed editor of the New York Post and many other things. But this book, The Unbroken Thread, is really fascinating. Sorab, thank you for coming on. It's good to see you. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be back on your show. So this book starts out with a, uh, a description of a, a fantasy about your son, Maximilian, and he grows up and he is uh, an elite. He works for a hedge fund or a publishing house. Uh, he does yoga. He has a girlfriend uh, and a Tesla and they travel around Europe. And, and you talk about this as kind of this is your nightmare scenario. What is so nightmarish about that life? It sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I guess it could. There could be worse nightmares, but my my assumption is, and you know, please God, I hope it's true that you know my you know he, my son is not going to end up being you know God forbid an an opioid addict, you know, or or something like that. So, given the way um, elites in the United States tend to transfer their elite status to their children, chances are our, our son's going to be upper middle class, you know, like his mother and I. So the reason I worry about that life um, is because. Um, it, it's a dark vision because I, w I don't want my son to be, a, you know, frankly, a man of purposeless de decadence, um, you know, unmoored from um, any kind of sense of tradition, unmoored from any kind of, uh, of the classical and Christian accounts of what it truly means to be free, to be happy. Rather, he's just, so, quote unquote, kept his options open all his life and um, sought to just sort of get ahead and maximize his own autonomy. And the result is, I argue, that in fact he is not free because to be re truly free means to um, bind yourself to something greater than yourself. To be free means to accept duty and accept sacrifice. That's the kind of older account of freedom that I hope to transmit to my son and maybe the reader or parents who are readers of this book. Um, and I, that's the project of the book, to say perhaps the modern, narrow account of freedom as mere choice might be wrong, and it may, it may be leading us to um, uh, society to a bad place. Here's what tradition broadly understood offers as an alternative. And, so that's and, the book's thesis. I mean, it's an interesting thesis in that it emphasizes, as, as the subtitle says, the wisdom of tradition, not necessarily of faith. I mean, you're a man of faith. You've written a lot about faith, but that's not you're not entirely writing about that here. You're writing about tradition itself. Is, is tradition enough in and of itself? Well, um, the tradition that I um, talk about is is um, heavily faith inflected. Okay. Um, and a lot of so I should note that the book is posed as 12 questions, 12 questions, each of which poke holes in one of our modern certainties. Um, but many of the questions ultimately have theological components. So, for example, um, we begin with uh, one of the early questions is, is God reasonable? Both in the sense that, is it reasonable to believe in God? And is that God a reasonable God? Um, uh, so, you know, or, or why would God want you to take a day off? And I, I actually address that through the life of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Obviously, the reasonable God question through Thomas Aquinas is the most fitting for that question. But at any rate, um, you know, you're right that um, you know there are plenty of traditions which don't deserve our reverence, and many of them die out. You know, traditions come and go; they last for a while. They not all of them endure. 
But there is this enduring tradition uh, which has a kind of religious component or has a religious expression. Um, but elements of it can also be found in pagan philosophy. Elements of it can be found in um, uh, uh, the Far Eastern traditions. And they all, you know, they disagree among themselves, but they all emphasize this idea that, um, that various limits uh, imposed on you, whether by tradition itself or by nature, are actually sources of liberation. And the loss of limits make you less free. So a very obvious example is the Sabbath one that I mentioned. Um, uh, you know, obviously, Muslims, Christians, and Jews disagree over which day to consecrate, but um, all of them agree that Sabbath restrictions are somehow connected with freedom. And the American Sabbath was lost relatively recently. You know, this country had a Sabbatarian tradition going back before the founding to, to the time of the colonies. And we were told that if we, you know, um, Sabbath was restrictive, why don't you just do as you please? Um, you can choose to shop, you can choose to work. But in fact, we find that on the other side of that liberation, we're more harried. Working class people especially don't have time to spend with their families, with their kids. Um, and uh, generally speaking, not having peace with ourselves because we're just always working or always consumed with activities. So you see, the, again, um, something that appeared to be a, a, a restriction was a source of liberation. And that same paradox works itself out in each of the book's uh, chapters in different yeah. dimensions of life. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I lived in England for seven years in the 90s, and when I got there, their Sabbath tradition was much stronger than ours. Uh, London would just shut down. Everybody would disappear and go home. By the time I left, that had fallen apart. And you could see it. It was much more harried life. It was much more, it seemed like it was going to be more free. And yet, in fact, it was, it was somehow oppressive. You could actually feel it. So you make a really good point about it. And I, I actually witnessed that happen uh, in England. In, in the short 90s. span. Yeah. Um, so some of the people you put forward are kind of what we might call the usual suspects of people that we, we know and respect, like Seneca. Uh, I was, interestingly, just about three months ago, I was rereading uh, Seneca. And your, your chapter on Seneca is called uh, something like, what's, what's good about death? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. What, what is good about death? Well, I think um, Seneca would argue that um, death provides a narrative endpoint without which your life just meanders to the point of being intolerable. Um, uh, he associated a life, a possibility of not there being natural death in life as an endpoint to life with the kinds of stories that don't have a clear beginning, middle, and an end and just sort of go on forever. And he suggested that um, after a while, we would get high, we would tire of all of the life's uh, uh, bodily pleasures, its rivalries, its competitions, all of those would become tiresome. And so it's pointless and, in fact, paralyzing to the point of um, uh, kind of harming your ability to live a good life if you constantly obsess about avoiding, uh, avoiding death. Um, so I think we saw that uh, uh, over the course of the pandemic. And, in fact, I wrote the Seneca chapter just at the, as the pandemic was peaking in May. Um, where it wasn't that Seneca would argue we should be jackasses. And if he had lived now and, you know, he knew about the germ theory of disease, he would take reasonable precautions. But he suggested that a kind of unreasonable fear of death that becomes all-consuming, or you treat one source of death, you magnify it to the point where you can't live anymore, um, 
uh, you're not living, first of all. And then you become blind, paradoxically, to other sources of danger, like, for example, in our case, joblessness or social alienation for kids who, are get, who weren't getting schooled because we so overwhelmingly focus on this one potential source of death, which is um, the coronavirus. Is, it, is there a strange uh, kind of paradox that the longer we live and the more uh, our children are protected, and these are great wonders of science that our children uh, don't die in the way they did, you know, just a hundred years ago. Um, is it is there a strange paradox where the longer we live, the, the more we feel we have to lose, and the less we actually uh, dare to live? That if you actually increase life to eight hundred years, we just never leave our house. Uh, do you think that that's operational in this pandemic, in the way people reacted to it? I, 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 look, I, I think. A strictly empirically minded person would say, well, how do you prove that? I don't know. But I think um, just anecdotally speaking, it's absolutely true. And we saw it working out. I got to say, you know, look, uh, Seneca did not have the benefit of revelation. He overlapped with, with Jesus, but he wasn't a Christian. He was, he was a pagan Roman. Um, but even I being a Christian, I found, I found great solace during the pandemic um, in, in reading his advice, which is, you know, basically that you should begin each day thinking that it could be your last. Mm. Again, not in a morbid or a weird way. It just, it puts things in perspective, you know, like, yes, I'm going to be reasonable. I'm going to take precautions. But even if I take the greatest precautions, I might like choke on a piece of apple and, and collapse and die. And that could be the end of me. So, you know, that gives you a sense of equanimity and calm, I think. Um, yeah, no, I, I, even as a believer who, you know, a believer who has a kind of uh, a solace in, in a transcendent heavenly horizon, yeah. um, still need that in, on a day to day basis. Right. Everyone wants to go to heaven. No one wants to die. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's fair to say. <laughs> one of the chapters that got a lot of attention in the press, and I, I thought, you know, I thought some of the criticisms were worth paying attention to was a chapter on Andrea Dworkin. Uh, and for those who don't remember Andrea Dworkin, she was almost like, like a, a parody of an uh, unattractive, angry feminist who said that all sex is rape. And uh, what, what tradition is she in, besides the annoying tradition? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so, look, I, I use Andrea Dworkin for the proposition that sex is not a private matter. Um, the chapter um, question is, is sex private? And the reason I thought she'd be a useful figure for that, and I have to say she's the only um, figure in the book who, first of all, wouldn't want to be placed next to these other figures, meaning she wouldn't want to be near C.S. Lewis or, or Augustine or Seneca or, or, or Seneca, uh, Thomas and others. Like she fit uneasily. But um, I think she usefully stands for this idea that um, having been a child of the, of the 1960s kind of cultural ferment and the sexual revolution, by the 1980s, she reassesses all of that radically and says, no, this is, you know, sex liberationism is not working out well, particularly for women. And that um, contrary to what the sex liberationist types were saying in the 60s, 70s, um, and then into 80, the 80s and 90s, and still today, sex isn't just good, harmless fun, that there is a kind of public political dimension to it. And uh, what people do in the bedroom and how they do it um, has ramifications into, uh, in, into the broader society of how you organize society. And I think that point is, is 
very much salient today. You know, so for example, we have a society that says, on the one hand, we never stop talking about human dignity. We've never talked about it so much as we do today. And yet, you know, at, alongside that, we also know that about 100 million Americans a day uh, visit Pornhub. And when they do visit Pornhub, some of the most kind of popular categories involve like choking and beating teenage or very young looking women. So it, in other words, it, it proves Andrew Dworkin's point, but this was also St. Augustine's point, I argue, that, um, again, that, that, the, the, that the lust for domination of the bedroom warps or affects how you organize the rest of society, and it can belie your highest aspiration. Now, very quickly, I disagree with, with um, Andrea Dworkin's prognosis. I think her diagnosis in some ways was salient, and it would, it would not surprise someone like St. Augustine. I say that in the chapter, which is a kind of shocking contrast between the two. But her prognosis was basically men are shits, she said, and that's it. There's just the, there's no getting better. Men are horrible. Sex is horrible. Whereas I suggest that, you know, the natural law tradition and various traditional ways of attempting to regulate human sexuality were the best ways to deal with this problem. But of course, and someone like Andrew Dworkin would just dismiss all of that out of hand because that was all male supremacy or whatever. So I take a complicated approach to her. Unlike the other chapters, I, I'm, it's not hagiographic. It, it's critical of her. And it's, it's more nuanced than maybe the, the press reviews of the book might suggest. <laughs> it, it, it is. And I, it, it is interesting. I mean, I was recently uh, rereading some of the theology of the body from, uh, what, what do you call him now? Is he St. Uh, John Paul? Is that? Uh, yeah, St. Yeah, John Paul. St. John Paul. Um, and and I... I, I it, it is interesting to me that it is such a high view of, of sex. And you, when you read it, you think like, yes, this is obviously what we're supposed to be doing. And yet it's very easy to slip into uh, the immediate physicality of exactly. porn. Yeah, and, and it, it does take a certain amount of uh, religious training to actually elevate your life in that way. It's very, very difficult. Uh, so, that's a good you know, you, you tell a story. You name your son Maximilian after a saint. Um, I named my children after James Bond villains, but I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate your naming him after a saint. And the saint you name him after uh, performs an act that is mind-bogglingly uh, sacrificial and and beautiful, where he replaces he's in a death camp in a Nazi death camp, and he replaces one of the people assigned to uh, death, and he takes his place. And you ask the question. Is there any way in a society like this one uh, we can find that we will ever find that kind of faith, that kind of uh, sacrifice and willingness to sacrifice and nobility of sacrifice? Because it's a story. The story, as you read it, tears come to your eyes at the beauty of it. And yet it's hard to imagine most of the people you see on the street, including myself, it's hard to imagine elevating yourself in faith to that level. Is that level gone? I mean, is there something? What is it about the world that has has cut us off from that kind of? No, experience? I mean, I, actually, I'm not as I'm not as um, uh, pessimistic as as that might suggest. Um, uh, I do think that lots of people, ordinary people, make sacrifices like that all the time. Whether it um, you know health workers at the height of the pandemic. Um, you know, when it was really like the death numbers were very high and we didn't know much about the virus, that what they were doing is self-sacrificial in that way. Or just what ordinary moms and dads go through or put themselves through in order to, you know, protect their kids. That's 
the same kind of self-sacrificial uh, act. And I think, um, you know, members of our armed forces constantly lay down their lives for their friends. And when, when they do, we give them, you know, the Medal of Honor. Um, so, you know, I think it does go on. What, I, what worries me is that the philosophical thrust of our age makes acts like that, like St. Maximilian Kolbe's sacrifice at Auschwitz or the more ordinary sacrifices, makes acts like that kind of illegible for modern people. You know, mm. just sort of, uh, and if, if we continue to form people the way we do, you know, just for elites, just be selfish, get ahead. For people who aren't in the elites, even more precariously, you know, just consume your porn, here's your weed, legalize weed, here's your universal basic income. Um, then you will get a world in which that sacrifice will become rarer and rarer. Um, and and then I just it's a, I think it's a bleak world that I would like to forestall, where if people encounter something like a story like that, they wouldn't even be moved by it, because again, I think it, it becomes morally illegible for them. Mm. Uh, we're talking to Sorab Amari. The book is "The Unbroken Thread: Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos." You know, you've you've written something about somewhat about this, and you seem to avoid it in this book. But it, it's a, a problem that now is kind of, especially on the right uh, among conservatives, uh, how to reintroduce uh, into our world into uh, the the kind of religious ideas on which our country is founded. How to get them back into the schools? How to get them back into the into the um, public uh, forum? And we keep running up against uh, this idea that that is somehow limiting people's freedom to impose upon them a, an idea of the common coerce To coerce them, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I hear it all the time. I have several answers to them because I, I'm, I this objection is often posed to me all the time. Right. The first is that um, coercion is, is impossible. We, we, in, even, uh, even an especially liberal society coerces individuals. And we see that right now uh, in, in the sense that we contrary to all of this promise of liberalism that it provides a neutral public square. You know, classical liberalism is supposed to be the idea that it is indifferent as to ultimate accounts of uh, human life. It doesn't care what you hold to be the highest end of human life. Just a mechanism for, you know, uh, uh, adjudicating between our disputes and, uh, you know, protecting our rights. That's, that's all. Well, we see that that's not true, that in fact um, liberalism, at least especially its progressive variety, has a substantive vision, and it happens to be a very inhuman one. Um, and it's, but that vision is being coercively enforced. Uh, whether it's critical race theory, gender ideology, they enforce it against us very coercively. It's just that it, not all of the coercion is meted out by like a government. Some of it is, but lots of it is by private actors, large corporations, employers, private universities, or what have you. But I think that's a distinction. I mean, some conservatives, for them, that distinction is enough that it's the end of discussion. Well, it's private actors can choose as, as they may. But I think that's a very blinkered view because it's a formal distinction. It's a legal distinction. But its effects, you are being coerced. So then, if coercion of this kind is inevitable, then the question becomes, you know, what orthodoxy should you try to enshrine if you agree that the current one that's being rammed on our throats is inhuman and unreasonable? CRT gender ideology, etc. Um, so that's one answer. The other answer, I mean, it's a more philosophical answer, which is that, again, I have to cite authorities here, but Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, drawing from Aristotle, say that in order to build a virtuous citizenry, 
mere exhortations to virtue aren't enough. So when conservatives say, just evangelize the culture or just, you know, go out there and do virtuous things, that's all good. But, says Aquinas, again, quoting Aristotle, that, you know, that you need the support of laws because laws teach people. Yeah. By what they forbid and what they encourage, um, they shape different kinds of people. So we have to not shy away from using law, in a, again, in a reasonable way, in a humane way, to lead people to virtue. In fact, that's all statesmanship is in the classical account. Sora Bomari, the book is The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Sora, it's great to see you. I really appreciate it. a really interesting conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.